Curiosity. Kill the rat. Curiosity. Kill the rat. Sup, guys. Welcome back to Curiosity Killed the Rat, coming at you with another episode. My name is Kate. I'm a scientist, a neuroscientist, but I love all science. All science gets me hyped. And I would like to acknowledge that I am currently recording from the lands traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri people. And as always, I am joined by my pretty awesome co-host. I, I don't know why I paused. Yeah, there. I don't like I was the hesitation. Say something sassy, there. and then I decided, kind of you know what? I'm, I'm not going to be a, like, I'm not going to be a dick. And yet, um, the dickness has. You occurred. are pretty awesome. Oh, okay, I'll take it has. That. I'll take that. Uh, look, nah, you're great. You're great. Thanks, but who babe. are you? Why are you here? I am. <laughs> Matt, I am not a scientist, yes. but I'm a science enthusiast. I love all things science. And it's not just me yes. here today. I am joined by my very good friend, Bodie. And before I introduce you properly, I just want to start by acknowledging that we are both talking from lands traditionally owned by the Noongar people. But thank you for coming on the show, Bodie. How are you? Uh, hi, guys. Thank you very much for having me. I am feeling wonderful today. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited for this. Like, I am... Quivering with quivering life. with anticipation. <laughs> Don't do that to me. Don't do it to me. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like we need to make that anticipation joke at least once every two or three episodes. Um, but no, Bodie, tell us who are you? Well, my name is Bodie, and I, like Matt, am a science lover. Uh, we are all, in my opinion, scientists here on this earth, with our eyes to see and our ears to hear. So. Uh, I have yes. been no, I love it. studying, I love it. loving science my whole life, talking with Matt about it and mm -hmm. everyone else in my life about it. Mm, I always know when I have a message from you in my inbox that it's going to be some wild yeah, question like, that's going to send me yeah. down some rabbit hole. I always, truly, I look forward yeah. to it. And yeah, we've uh, we've got a few very interesting insights to talk about today, just based on some very simple laws of thermodynamics. So what is it you are talking about with Lots us of thermodynamics. on the show today? Hmm. Well, the word of today is entropy. Entropy. Hey, so I guess uh, let's bring it to you. Do you know what entropy means? Uh, what is entropy to you? Well, gosh, look, I, I would like to think that after the number of years of science that I have done, <laughs> that I have some level of understanding of entropy, especially from chemistry, I think is mostly mm. where I learned it at like an undergraduate science level, you know, learning about entropy in that sort of sense. And I have what I think is a half decent conceptual understanding of it, but, you know, ask me to explain it and I'll take the whole hour for myself. But I don't <laughs> want to do that because I want to hear Bodhi talk about it. Um, but I'll, I'll jump in when I can, but I'm keen to hear about it from a completely different perspective mm. from how I've probably thought about it before. Okay. Well, well, to, to just get started and lay the sort of foundational groundswork, Entropy is it's the second law of thermodynamics, and we will have to, of course, talk about the first law and the third law to really put the idea into context. But, you know, it's got a lot of descriptions, and a lot of people talk about entropy in terms of it's a measure of disorder or a measure mm. of chaos so, yeah. or even a measure of usefulness. So uh, entropy is basically the higher the entropy, uh, the less useful something is right uh, so and and what we really have to understand is that entropy is just a form of energy you know so mm. all things in this universe are made of energy you know even matter as einstein has told us is just highly condensed energy, energy little mm. tiny little balls of singularities that we call atoms and things like that mm -hmm. 
And, and the word that has stuck with me best to describe entropy is actually dispersion. And what do you mean by that exactly? Well, like we said, you know, the, the atom is a highly dense, well, they, they can't see my hands, but uh, <laughs> yes, highly, <laughs> you guys can. It's, it's hard to remember that sometimes. Mm, it's everything okay. Yeah, a highly together. dense, yeah. concentrated amount of energy, a Condensed. lot in a really small space. Mm -hmm. And these atoms, every atom in the universe is constantly vibrating and therefore radiating heat. Yeah. And this heat is energy, which was once inside the atom and it's now dispersed mm -hmm. out into the cosmos with lots of space in between it. So it's literally mm. spread out. Yeah. So how dispersed yeah, however, is. how dispersed it is determines how high the entropy is. Right. Mm. It's like how we conceptually know, right? If you you have like a, I was going to say glass beaker, that tells you how sciencey my brain is. <laughs> just a cup, just a glass of yeah. water. Come on, Kate, be relatable. <laughs> The lay people don't P lay people know beakers. what beakers are, though. It's not like it's such a foreign thing you're it's talking true. about there. We know what a fucking beaker is. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm oh my a scientist. God, stop trying to gatekeep uh... beakers. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> this is why we need more lay people. So on the you show, have a Kate. beaker of water. <laughs> yeah, right in the end. Beaker of water. And you get some like food dye or something or just like food coloring and you, you put a little dropper in, it's going to disperse within the water, yeah, right? Exactly. We know that. It doesn't just stay in like a little gl globulus, like the, the particles of dye disperse amongst the water molecules and it all becomes a mm -hmm. mixture. And we just kind of know that that's a thing, yeah. right? Like if you see a movie and that happens or you see that in reverse in like a rewound movie, you know that You know that that is in reverse. The way that things happen. Yeah, you know that... Um, it generally speak, it doesn't undisperse itself. You know, you can't unshatter a, a broken glass, right? Mm, and so, lower entropy is when it's still at the yeah in in the that's in the right, dropper, that's right. and then higher entropy is when it's spread out inside the water, dispersed. Yeah. And you can give that a value how dispersed that's it right. is. Mm. And that value is its entropy, yeah. is the right. entropy of the and system. Are, and that's just like a zoomed out thing of what happens on like a very, very small yeah, scale. And right? also on the most massive scale there is. And, you know, you can take that simple mm. example and you can simplify it even further. You can just look at the cup of water yeah. containing the water mm -hmm. it, inside mm. a, a boundary, mm. you know, all that, all those H2O molecules, mm -hmm. squeeze, you that's know, crammed together in there. And then you could spill your water. And suddenly, mm, and it's going to yeah, spread, spread out, out everywhere. It's the same number of molecules spread out mm, everywhere. Right. So inside the cup, lower entropy, more dense. Mm -hmm. You spill the cup, the water goes everywhere. Higher entropy, and, and you could still... even smash mm -hmm. that cup. And that's yeah. why that's it's still adhering to. That's why lower entropy is more useful right. because what use is a spilt cup that's of water? Right. Yeah. You want it full so that you can pour it on right. someone's head. I mean, into your. <laughs> <laughs> You're giving me flashbacks, Kate. Was that on purpose? <laughs> what? Was that on purpose? Older sibling vibes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For context, the amount of times that Kate has poured vessels of water onto my head in our childhood is at least one, at least one. It was my chosen form of bullying <laughs> and I make no apologies because Matt, it was just entropy. <laughs> you were just trying to demonstrate entropy to me from an early age. I was what? just that's... a science communicator from the day that well, I... Well, hey, you yes, can't spell science yep, communication mm -hmm. without Kate. Like, communication. Communicate. Like that. Shun. Communicate. This yeah, is how you, communicate. That's my new brand. That's your new pursuit. No, hey, no, hey, I'm communicate. That. 
Communicate. Oh, because I've always said, like, I used to be intoxicate is my drunk alter <laughs> yeah. ego. Um, that's, you know, my, that person has a name. We don't like them very much. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then there's complicate is just my, you know, standard existing <laughs> self. But then when I try and be so you could say the I'm difference between your, like your higher entropy self and your lower entropy self is yeah. com- communicate versus complicate mm. or intoxicate like is maximum that. entropy. <laughs> intoxicate yeah, is intoxicate least is maxim- useful. Minu- least useful. <laughs> most, <laughs> most, most disorderly. <laughs> most disordered. It's just your persona on a spectrum <laughs> of uh, <laughs> anthropic states. Oh, most disordered and least useful is intoxicate <laughs> for sure. Uh, Anyway, back to entropy. (laughs) Okay, so well, if we have our general understanding of it now, there's a the I think the the first call of order is to look at entropy on the most massive scale because I think that's where a lot of people get very interested. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. when you get to the small stuff, which we will get to, you know, the the micro and the cell and organics and how organic life relates to entropy we will get into that yeah that that mm-hmm. is all you you need the context the wider context to really get the full ramifications of how life relates to entropy so on the most mm-hmm. massive scale we we talk about this idea of the big bang right mm. and the start of time or or even just before the start of time you know everything in the universe was supposedly a tiny singularity just like an atom like yeah. The OG atom, right? <laughs> mm. Everything that there is now, uh, this is now talking about the first law, which is conservation of energy or yeah. matter or mm-hmm. information, if you want to use a word that sort of covers all of it. Tomato, tomato. So, you know, at the, mm. the beginning of time, we basically had a tiny little speck that contained everything that there is now. And we've never lost or gained any new energy this whole time, all that's happened is it has been steadily dispersing. Right. And so that that is this, this widest look at mm. entropy, you know, way to the, from the start mm. of time, the entire universe as one whole began incredibly dense. And it has constantly been dispersing ever since mm. then. Entropy has constantly been increasing. And that is like a universal process. It's mm. never going to stop. It's ne- it never has stopped, mm. you know, and for, there is no reason that it ever should stop. Because it all just comes down to probability. That's right. Like that's all it is. That's, this is, sorry, this is me just having like a existential moment number one for the episode. We'll do it. Uh, <laughs> there'll be more of them. But no, just the fact that entropy, I mean, we haven't really gotten to exactly that statistical definition. I don't know if you were going to go into it, Bodhi, about how entropy just is, you know, why do things spread out? Why does that always happen? And it's literally just because there are more ways for things to be spread out than there are for them to be Yeah, that, that's condensed. exactly right. And you can actually, I actually learned this from watching a brilliant SciShow uh, sci episode that talks all about entropy. And they... Oh, I'd love... Hank Green oh, is... Yes. I was, <laughs> fantastic. My idol, my psychom idol. And there's, uh, there's this amazing thing that happens on the tiny micro level where if you do have just literally a bunch of atoms or a few molecules together and you just watch them over time as they just chaotically randomly move around each other according to all the various forces that they're applying on each other, uh, Mm. it does occasionally, spontaneously order themselves. They actually do do Mm. that. It's like even on the micro, just pure random probability, 
one in a million. Yeah. But mm. every now and then those molecules, they might line up in a perfectly straight line or they might all mm. cluster together on one side of a container instead of being evenly distributed. Oh my god! So gosh. it does happen. So the idea of the it universe always tending towards entropy and towards disorder is simply because it's the way, it, it's it's far more probable because there's just so mm. many more instances yeah. of disorder than there are, or well, rather than there just being some kind of inherent force that's yeah. guiding the universe towards... Like, if you think about apart. it like a, a chessboard the chessboard imagery works really well for me where like, you know, every space on the chessboard is a potential place that you could put down a chess piece, right? And if you just randomly put down all the chess pieces, the chances of you putting them all in the top left corner is is exactly one, right? Mm. There's one way mm. that you could put those chess pieces down in that particular condensed way. However, there are like I don't know, do quick maths, <laughs> yeah. some obscene number of combinations of ways that you could place those chess pieces down in a way that wasn't condensed. So even though each one of those spread out options of how you've arranged them is as likely as that top corner piece, the fact of the matter is there's only one way that you can do that top corner piece, whereas there are millions of ways that you can do the spread out arrangements. Yeah. And so by pure probability, mm. the, the things just like to be like energy molecules everything just likes to spread out more like the chances of it landing on a spread out combination the same thing is said about like a, a deck of cards heaps of times i've heard you're like there's only 52 mm. cards in a deck but again i can't remember the exact number but it's like some obscenely high number in the billions of something of, of different combinations that the cards can be in because it's 52 factorial right which is mm. a fucked big number because Which is 52 times large. 51 times 50 times 49, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And mm. also the same reason, you know, back to the days when we had headphones with cables, how headphones will I always still get... have cabled headphones. Yeah, I did, but they broke. <laughs> oh, <laughs> how they would always get tangled uh. in your pocket. Like you would, put, you would coil it up, it would there be are fine. So you many put it in your pocket, ways you take it out, it could fucked. be tangled. Yeah. Then it could be, which just the fact that our whole universe expanded and became everything that it is because of probability, mm. like just the chances are we were going to arrange and become the people that we are that interact mm, in this universe. One of many improbable You know, outcomes. the chances are so small, but it was a much greater chance that we ended up this way than stayed as that tiny little singularity. Well, that, that's a really interesting, what? really interesting point. What? <laughs> it's one of those things where it actually, it, it all does perfectly make sense. And I've started to see entropy actually as a consequence of gravity. Because if you think about the sun mm. is a prime example, it's a really big ball of dense energy. It's basically like if the singularity at the start of the universe is the OG atom and the atoms we have now are the atoms we have now, mm. tiny versions of that, mm -hmm. a sun is somewhere in the middle. You know, it's a super massive mm -hmm. ball of dense energy radiating less dense energy, aka emitting mm -hmm. entropy. The reaction that's causing this sun to radiate all that energy is nuclear fusion right at the core of the sun. Mm. And nuclear mm -hmm. fusion happens because you have compressed so many particles or atoms together under such high mm -hmm. gravity that they fuse. Mm -hmm. And this equation, Einstein's E equals MC squared is sort of realized. It's E equals MC squared in action is nuclear fusion, right? Yeah. Because we're mm. melt we're breaking the bonds, we're overpowering the bonds, which stop our uh, molecules from ever touching. You yeah. know how atoms never directly touch, except in nuclear mm. fusion, because there's so much gravity, it overpowers those bonds that repel, 
and the the atoms mm -hmm. literally fuse, fuse together, together which releases all that energy that's trapped inside of them and that's mm -hmm. where all the energy radiating out of the sun comes from so it's this really mm -hmm. interesting constantly pulling in from gravity which is something all mass does it has all mass has gravity it's all constantly pulling in towards itself causes this release of energy back out and so mm -hmm. it's almost uh entropy is like an inevitability because right. of gravity because all things and that start of time that singularity at the start of time think about the amount of gravity that thing would have had right because it has the density of all mm. matter in the universe exactly it all contained in one tiny point so it's mm. impossible for it not to start expanding you know mm. and it's all because of the conservation of energy essentially because yeah. it has to go it somewhere it has to go somewhere and well if matter because it doesn't stop existing that's right and if it has that much gravity we've seen what gravity does to a sun mm. so that's clearly what must have happened to our universe mm. at its you know at its birth some kind of Gosh. massive level of nuclear fusion and admittance of that entropy on just a completely universal scale yeah it's like when you've got really lots of emotions bottled up and eventually <laughs> they just come out one way or another mm. <laughs> <laughs> what i can blame entropy for that yeah. too it's brilliant Brilliant. So that that takes us to, so we've got this singularity as the start of time, and then this constant expansion, dispersion of energy over time, and then through the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, which states that entropy always increases, which again is not necessarily always the case with smaller systems. So the fact that entropy always increases, which is the second law of thermodynamics, the first law is conservation of energy. The second mm. law is that entropy always increases. is not necessarily the case in tiny systems because entropy, because tiny systems can spontaneously mm. order themselves. So the second law is more of a guideline. Well, no, it's, it's more of an overall picture. So like we've said, it's statistically more likely. So even though it can order itself, overall, and the scope of the universe, entropy is always increasing. Right. Even if it may mm. do random little things on the small scale, overall, because there's just what, so many more options to increase mm. than it is to randomly order itself. Mm. And that takes us to the end of time. If this process continues forever and ever and ever, which it, it ought to, as far as we know, mm. yeah. then eventually the universe will become maximum entropy, maximum dispersion, where Every sun has been burnt out and every atom has stopped vibrating. It's literally just mm. run out of usefulness, right? And it's still expanding. So all that energy is as spread out as it possibly can be. It's as spread out as it possibly can be. Mm. And it is still expanding just for an eternity. And that and that's what they call the heat death of the yeah, universe, yeah that's right isn't which it? is ironically very cold, mm. but it's the death of the death of the heat. Yeah. So that is Which a is big exit. Terrifying. Because that'll yeah. happen, right? Well, we're going to. Do you know what sort of like scale we're talking about? Well, it like is, the whole universe. is it? like trillions, billions. I mean, time scale. It is beyond the conception of the human mind how, how far in the future that will be. Yeah, For okay, example, cool. like our sun, they reckon, has mm. been, according to the best maths there is, has been around for about five billion years four and a half or five billion years. Mm. And they reckon that's about halfway through our sun's lifetime. Right. But the, the okay. sheer amount of suns out there and galaxies and the fact that they can 
turn into black holes or they can be destroyed and then reform as fresh suns. Mm. And this process is going to take an incredibly True. long time before we actually reach this heat death. Like, So in terms of compared mm. to like how old we think the universe is, where do you reckon we're at on the universe's timeline of how much time has passed and how much time is left? Are we at the halfway point yet? Uh, no, I, I don't Are we think at the quarter point? Probably not tenth? even a quarter. Would that, I imagine this universe is still very, very young. Mm. So there's some hope there. We still got time. Mm. We can procrastinate mm. a bit longer. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Mm-hmm. So that's, mm-hmm. that's cool. a bit... That's all I needed to yeah. know. <laughs> not in our lifetime. That's you, the yeah, we don't, we don't have to worry mm. about it, but we should actually, and we'll get into that. Because <laughs> there are there are actually things we can each do that, that will uh, potentially affect that outcome. If you go and tell me to start tidying my room more, I swear I'm going to be mad. Okay, look. <laughs> I think everyone should tidy their room more. I'm not saying I'm. I'm not saying. <laughs> I love how you you are currently in Matt's room and you looked around as you said that. Well, here's here's um, the thing that brought me joy. Entropy applies to every space in the cosmos. It is an you cannot fight entropy, uh, as I say. You cannot stop entropy, for that would stop time. All you can do is manage entropy. Because mm. entropy is always going to come mm. back, or is always going to come back. That's, That's right. why we have to keep cleaning our room. That's why we have to keep sweeping. That's why we have to wash but dishes. But what I'm and wash saying is, statistically speaking, it's just far more likely for my clothes to be on the bed versus on, or on the floor, or on the piano, or on my desk. Versus in the cupboard. The cupboard is one spot. There's seven places they could yeah. be that aren't my That's cupboard. Right. Therefore, That's right. Truthfully, I'm I'm at the you know will and back of the universe. What and my cupboard is just compartmentalized entropy. I get it out of <laughs> out of my room, out of everything. And I'm honestly running out of cupboard space, and it's kind of overflowing. And the door won't shut properly because yeah. I, I need oh, a bigger no. cupboard or less clothes. Well, that yeah, I think that's why I have an open wardrobe, so mm. I can't just stuff things in there. I have to that's hang right. it up. Uh, and that so that brings us to you know to help our, our your listeners really get a to really concretize this idea of entropy. In hey, you lives. use that word. Oh, I love that I'm word. Calling you out. Concretize. It's a good yeah. word, right? It's a fantastic word. Why are you calling him out? It's fantastic. Uh, we were talking about it the other day. <laughs> like literally last night was the first time I ever heard this word used in, oh. in, in the context of a real sentence. So <laughs> word of the day, what does concretized mean? Concrete. Well, we've taken this really quite high-minded uh, intellectual idea, a very scientific, very mathematical, statistical concept. And now we need, to, we need to help the viewers understand how this is in their own lives. It's mm. in all of our lives because mm. it's, a, it's a universal process. So the, the best example I was given at a young age was you take a house, an empty house. Mm-hmm. There is nobody living in this house and you just leave it. And over time, mm-hmm. the dust builds up. The, everything starts degrading, right? Plants grow mm-hmm. in. Plants start growing. Things, it, entropy Insects starts accumulating. In. And then if you have someone Cockroaches. living in this house, when you're living in that house, because you are a being made of dense energy and we'll get to how life and entropy work together, uh, you will actually speed up this process. So you, by living in the house, now there's also dishes piling up, you know, and the toilet mm. starts to smell and there's clothes that need washing, all this stuff. You don't got to call me out <laughs> like this. No, no, but this is the thing. It applies to every single space in the cosmos. So it's not something to feel bad about. It's, mm. it's again, it's inevitable. Is this build up, mm. gradual build up of entropy mm-hmm. is you you just cannot cannot do anything because to where stop where there it. is mass and energy there will be the emittance of 
entropy, mm-hmm. just like in suns. They're like That's a right. big concentration of energy, a big concentration That's of matter. Right. And as a result, they emit huge amounts of entropy uh, to the level mm-hmm. that they're able to sustain life on other planets and mm-hmm. solar systems mm-hmm. and things like that. So I can also blame the amount of coffee I drink <laughs> for how messy I am because the more energy that is concentrated oh, within on, me, Kate, you know the messier that, I'm going to you know be. That caffeine doesn't give you energy. We've been through this. It just switches no, off the receptor no. in the brain that makes you feel tired. <laughs> You've been listening. I'm so proud. Yeah. Yeah. Of you. Oh, that, okay. I, ca- I can't be mad at that. I truly thank you. I tried to make a joke, but you called it out for its scientific inaccuracy, yeah, and I deserved it. And I deserved oh, it. That's what science is all about, guys. <laughs> and so there's no there's no amount of cleaning that any one person could do that would mean that they would never have to do cleaning again. You know, you could do a mm-hmm. deep spring clean, get into every corner, every crevice, completely do your whole house, smash it out mm. one week of hardcore work. And a week later, it's going to be start getting messy again. Right. It's just the way mm-hmm. things are. So I'm sure all our viewers can relate to this. Or all our yeah. listeners can relate to this. <laughs> and this is this is yeah. entropy in a, in a more concrete Yes, way. a localized. And then you have a husky that lives in your house. Oh, yes. And, yes. oh my God, the entropy of that fur. <laughs> Fuck's sake. That's right. Just Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, I remember living with that Tumbleweeds. Dog. Even just that, dog that, that, that two weeks I stayed with you recently, I forgot about the dog hair <laughs> yeah. and most of the clothes I brought were black. And when I got home, they yep. weren't black anymore. It's... Nope, they were husky. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my fashion style is a fur coat. Husky. <laughs> fur coat, yeah. Donated willingly by... Yes. Vegan-friendly you know, fur coat. With a lot of, you know, insistence from the owner of the fur. Well, we must be ready to talk about organic life and entropy because... Mm. Oh, heck yes. Is, I, oh, yeah. I'm i excited for the, this. I don't... resident biologist here. Oh, yeah. I know, but I've never thought about how entropy relates to life. Oh, it is life absolutely fascinating. Beyond, like... Oh, you know, I'm going to take a step back and my... let you two vibe out for a <laughs> second. <laughs> okay. Okay, so. I'm keen. Let's do the it. The first thing that ever got me really interested in this was actually hearing Brian Cox doing an interview with Russell Brand, which was a, well, Russell mm-hmm. Brand was interviewing Brian Cox, whichever way you look at it. Mm-hmm. And that was a fascinating interview. But the thing that stood out for me was when Brian Cox was answering a question about what is the difference between organic and inorganic matter and how did it first start up? And, and mm-hmm. basically the description Brian Cox, Brian Cox gave, trying not to say that in a dirty way. Ha, Cox. Was a... Uh, <laughs> there we go, I'll do that. Just going to lean in apparently. Thank you, Matt. Someone had to say it. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> so he described it as at some point, geo, microscopic geochemistry became biochemistry. And the main difference was that the information, which which is just a broad term for matter or energy or all of the above. So the information stopped losing energy and started gaining energy, right? So mm-hmm. it stopped, like the sun is always giving off energy, atoms are always giving off energy. This first singularity from the start of time is constantly giving mm. off energy, which is the energy that things give off is a less dense version is entropy. Yeah. So when mm. life came about, mm-hmm. it appears to be doing the opposite. Right, it appears to be gaining information over time, keeping yeah. keeping it inside instead of keeping allowing it, it out. Ordered. Yeah, keeping the it ordered. The idea that we do clean our rooms and yeah. we do apply order to things that have disorder, we seem to be going against the flow of entropy. We, we seem to be mm. able to, and this is uh, also 
evolution itself, the mere notion mm. of evolution of becoming more complex over time rather than more disordered uh, is is a, just mind-boggling when you look at the, these laws of thermodynamics. Mm. So it seems that life goes against them. And I have a few names here for you that uh, people have people who have thought about this in the past because, as mm -hmm. they say, we are all standing on the shoulders of giants. So mm. lots of people have talked about this and thought about this and done research and tested it in the past. So we can actually not, we don't have to do that stuff because it's already been done. Mm. So a fellow named Boltzmann once said that entropy equals disorder. That's how he described it. Mm -hmm. And that's where that comes from. Yeah, I that's guess. where that, that whole idea comes one -liner from. One-liner that people like to give. Yeah. And he... Because it's not necessarily disorder. No, well, that's it's what we're just... going to get into, right? Mm. Yeah. So he's not, he's not mm. exactly right in that definition, and we'll mm. talk about that. And the next thing that he, he sort of proposed, which he wasn't really right about either, but it was very close, <laughs> was that... <laughs> you got to start somewhere. Was that living organisms decrease their entropy over their lifetime. Now... Plenty okay. of research has been done and we can just see it. We can observe this in our own lives that this is not true. In fact, mm -hmm. so, you know, everyone slowly accumulates crap inside of them, basically. <laughs> and, you know, this is ultimately what kills us in the end. This is why we're mortal, because you simply cannot, you cannot overcome entropy or well, not yet. And, <laughs> and cells live very short lives. You know, they're the building block of life. They, they don't live for very mm. long. And again, so, and because, yeah, I guess cells, sorry, what were you well, going to say? Just on the cell, SciShow has done, again, this, another episode about how the cells, they say how they hack entropy, where the, mem the mm. membrane of the cell, and it, please excuse me if I get any details wrong, you might be able to correct me on them, Kate, but mm -hmm. the membrane of the cell is full of what they call lipids. Is that right? Mm. Yep. Yes, and the little the little spermy yeah, boys yeah, that yeah. have the hydrophobic, when, yes, when hydrophobic, yeah, hydrophilic. Right. When we're talking about soap, and I used the analogy sperm, and then someone wrote to me and was like, "Why didn't you just say tadpoles?" <laughs> and I was like, "Same thing." Because I am a child. They're both swimmers. Um, like, yeah, tadpoles are just feel? slightly more sentient sperm. <laughs> I'm here for yeah. it. So anyway, these and you said hydrophobic, hydrophilic, which means one end, mm -hmm. uh, you know, repels water. And the other end mm -hmm. likes it. Is that basically right? Yeah. And it's also yeah. it's so, fat as well. Is that right? Yeah. So fat fat is lipids. That's what yes. it is. Fat is made up of lipid molecules, which have this hydrophilic head and hydrophobic tail. Right. So what that means is when they arrange themselves in a sort of liquid or water environment, the heads are all going to stick out and all the tails are going to like tie in together mm -hmm. essentially. Or in, in like the case of a cell, it's a lipid bilayer. So you have essentially two tails facing each other and two heads facing mm -hmm. away and they line up like soldiers mm -hmm. like that essentially and form a wall where either side of the wall is the heads and they have their backs facing in and heads facing yeah. out and that is what the lipid bilayer is and that's you know in our recent episode on vaccines go back and listen we were talking about that's the role of like the lipid nanoparticles in the new mrna vaccines is because they need to get the mrna inside the cell and so you need a lipid so they use a lipid nanoparticle because then it can fuse to the cell membrane mm. and spew in the mrna mm. um so 
yeah, that's my little no, no, <laughs> rant no, about awesome. cell membranes. That's, awesome. that's the sort um, of thing that, and they're really cool. But no, you're right. Like it, I haven't seen that particular slideshow video, but that's that kind of arranging yeah. of the lipid molecules goes against entropy, well, well, right? Here's because the it, thing, right? it's getting more ordered. So ultimately, those, the lipids, anyway. Ultimately, what happens mm -hmm. is because of this, because of how they, you know, relate to water and interact with it. The net result is that the inside of the cell, inside of the cell, remains mm -hmm. low entropy, but overall, mm -hmm. the second law of thermodynamics still wins out. Entropy still increases overall. And mm. if you want to get the details, just watch the. I guess because the, the water, the water in between the cells yeah. would gain yeah. entropy, and basically it would also spit out. So it's into like a trade-off. Yeah, it would mm. spit because I guess for everything that loses entropy, something else gains. That's right. That's right. So. Oh, this, this is this cool. is what Schrodinger actually said as well, which <laughs> oh gosh, most people, most people know about. Territory. Most people know about Schrodinger from uh, his little kitty cat, quantum mechanics, and all that jazz. But he actually <laughs> was very interested in entropy and life. He actually wrote a whole book about it called "What Is Life," and he oh God, he amazing. was responding to what Boltzmann said about how living organisms decrease the entropy over their life, which we now know is not entirely true. But they do have remarkably low entropy. And they can maintain that low entropy for quite a period of time, which is a very impressive feat. And what Schrodinger said, he said, in order for the second law to hold true, we have to recognize that these living organisms are dependent on their external environment. So they depend on the constant increase of entropy around them. Right. It's part of the process we have to that take they depend in energy on. in order to fuel ourselves to keep going. That's like right. the fact that we have to eat food. We need constant fuel. That's Plants right. need sunlight. Mm. They need water. Yeah. They need shit given to them to actually grow and survive. And it's very, it's very easy to see this in yourself because of body heat, right? Mm. We are all constantly mm. radiating body heat, mm. which is just like a sun, just like a cell, just like the start of the universe. We are dent we are quite densely mm. packed with molecules and we are constantly radiating heat, which Makes is me think of the Star Wars quote from Yoda. Luminous beings are we. Mm. No, it, well, it's true. I mean, pretty yeah. much. Pretty much. That's right. That's like that's why you can use an infrared camera to see like Yeah, that's right. You can see living things because they radiate heat. And they also not yeah. only so not only do they depend on their environment, but they actually do overall contribute to the net increase of entropy. So by keeping it low inside, you're just pushing it all out into the world around you, right? That's mm -hmm. how we maintain low entropy. That's like we were just saying, if your car starts to overheat, you want to turn on the heater because mm. that pushes all the hot air out of the engine and in, in, yeah, into the car. Yeah, you know? right, and into the car yeah. and out of the, yeah. So that's mm. that really interesting mm. the redispersal of entropy rather than necessarily that's higher right, or that's lower. That's right, that's right. It's like how you can have your clothes on the floor and then you can pick them up and shove them in the cupboard. The clothes are still there. You've just moved it somewhere else so that the room's entropy is lower, but the net entropy... The the cupboard's entropy is... now higher. Kind of sounds so like So very that, high that, um, that the overall room's entropy is the same. That's right. That's right. If like not the, higher. The, what, what's that? The first law of thermodynamics? Like the just the transfer of energy That's rather the, than the Conservation, of, conservation of, energy. of energy. It's a conservation mm. of entropy. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the thing. Yeah. So you you can never create or destroy energy. You can only see how it changes over time. And that is actually mm. how physicists define the arrow of time. The forwards pointing arrow mm. of time is defined yeah. in terms of entropy. Right. Because if you were to, for one, if you were to freeze all entropy in the universe, that means every sun stops burning, every atom mm -hmm. stops vibrating, literally everything stops and you get this 
three-dimensional still image of a cosmos that has just frozen in time. That's what it means mm -hmm. to stop entropy. Mm. And if you were to reverse entropy, then things like cups getting spilt or eggs getting cooked would all be happening yeah, in reverse. Yeah, would right. go backwards. Yeah. Have you seen the acapella science video? No. no. Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm going to have to send this to you. I'm going to link it in the description awesome. along with these other SciShow yes. uh, videos that we referenced. But no, there's a acapella science where he, he sings a song about entropy or about entropic time and it's amazing. Mm. But the best part of the video is that it looks like he's singing forward, but everything he's doing, he's cooking an egg, he's spilling a glass, he's getting hit by a water balloon. It's all happening in reverse, like he's he's filmed it all like yeah, in reverse, yeah, and the whole yeah. the whole music video is going backwards, yeah. and like that's the thing is that it looks like it's going backwards because the entropy in all of those situations right. is going in reverse. Right. So what our brain does is goes, oh, that's time going backwards. But the only reason we think that or the only way we can conceptualize that is because we know that if a cup gets knocked over, it can't the things go un out yeah. and knock yeah. back in. You can't right. uncook yeah. an egg. You can't uncook yeah. a glass. They have yeah. actually successfully uncooked eggs. What? <gasps> they have done that. What? How? How? Look, you know what? I can't regurgitate all the exact details oh you. i guess yeah you just you are like because it's, it's just the, the way the proteins protein. change that's, right. that's, that's right. what i was gonna say so you just need to them? reverse that yeah reverse that chemical yeah. reaction which there must be something that you can add that catalyzes the mm. reverse reaction mm. there must be a way to do it and that, that's that's Certain really interesting because that's actually but, what uh so a uh, fella named uh roger pent oh goodness i've forgotten his name anyway he was a very good mate of stephen hawking's and he wrote an amazing mm -hmm. book uh which i read it's a very difficult read, but he takes you through all the laws of physics, all the different, like gravity and relativity. Mm -hmm. And he talks about entropy a bit. He gets into, you know, quantum mechanics, which is how I finally started to get some sort of grip on quantum mechanics was through that book. Mm -hmm. But when he talked about entropy and he talked about how you can actually reverse the entropy of an open system. So you can take your kitchen, which has dishes piled up and grease all over the stove and dust and food scraps on the floor. And you can put mm -hmm. work into that system and reorder it. You actually can do that. And in the process of doing that, of course, your body is emitting heat. And every time you touch something, you make a sound which emits, you know, energy. Mm. So in mm -hmm. the process of doing this to a closed system, the overall system, uh, still the second law wins out always. Right. But you can do this in a closed system. And then he did talk about the example of knocking a cup of water off a table and the glass smashes and it goes everywhere and the water starts seeping through the floorboards. And he he just made it. It was just a tiny note in this really intensely long book. But this tiny note got my brain whizzing because he said, technically, the reversibility of a system, because uh, we say some systems are reversible and some systems are irreversible. And he said, the reversibility of a system is purely practical. So in theory... Mm -hmm you could uncook an egg, which we now have done. In theory, you could track down every molecule of water, every the same molecules, collect them back up, every shard of glass, collect it back up, glue it back together, put the water back in the cup. In theory, it's possible. It's just the practical side of things that makes things, that makes entropy irreversible mm. in certain systems. Right. Fuck. Yeah, really interesting, right? It, and that got my mm. mind going. So this brings us to the, the third law of thermodynamics we have the first is conservation of energy the second is that entropy always increases and the third law is to do with residual energy and absolute zero 
So mm-hmm. absolute zero is the theoretical temperature where the atom itself stops vibrating. So fro- mm-hmm. it's fro- you've frozen an Which atom. Which would be zero entropy, right? Which would be zero. But so they've never actually achieved absolute zero anywhere, but they get incredibly close to it. And even at these incredibly close to absolute zero temperatures, there is always residual entropy, right? So you literally mm. cannot stop it, but you can slow it down. Right. How? By making things colder, by being more energy efficient, right? right? By using yeah, yeah, your energy yeah. at a slower rate, you can become, you can, in essence, you could make time last longer. Yeah, slow down. You could, oh. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Whoa, think about fuck. think about a car again. That's a really good example. Think about the fuel in a car. Mm. If you have one tank of fuel and two cars, and it's the same, like you've got, let's say, in hypothetical land, it's two identical situations, and the only difference is how the person is driving the car. And right. we have one person who accelerates gradually. You know, they just they just touch the accelerator and let the car build up its own momentum. They don't even mm-hmm. use the brakes. They just take their foot off and let the car gradually slow itself down. And that's mm. how they drive, right? They get everywhere slower. But the other, and then the fuel's going to last the longer. The fuel lasts longer and you travel more distance on one tank, right? You would, you would travel more distance on Fuck. one tank. So you get more out of your yeah. energy. Then you get a person yeah. who revs high and speeds up and then slows down rapidly and, you know, take their corners far and they do all those things. They're always guzzling through their fuel. Live fast, die young. Live fast, die young, right. <laughs> and what's more, the car itself won't last as long because the engine is burning hotter. Mm. It's being put under more force more often, things like that. So the tires will wear out quicker because of the right. friction. And that's and what that. life is about. It's about, it's a way of using energy, Right. It's just a different way mm. of doing it. That's a lot of a lot more of a slower process. And the net result of life is that there is excess energy, which is how mm. we can. And if time is oh, yeah. if time is just entropy, then we can slow time down. We can down. slow time down and basically make <gasps> it last longer. Yeah, right. That's what 2020 did. Very <laughs> successfully. Yeah, that was a pretty slow year. Turns out all you need is a uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus to, <laughs> you know, conspiracy theory. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's interesting about the perception of 2020, right? The whole idea of it was an incredibly slow year, but you look back mm. on it and I feel like mm. my memories the of 2019 are like my Happened last, last year. year. And but yeah. the 2020 still went by yeah. so slowly, yet it seems like nothing happened, right? Time goes by so, so slowly. slowly. <laughs> See, that's the one thing, Matt, that would improve our podcast if we were in the same room, not over Zoom. All of the random songs that we we'd start actually singing, be able to sing we them in time. We'd be able to sing them in time, <laughs> but also we would probably end up spending whole episodes just like singing just because into song. we're actually like in time with each other <laughs> instead of this horrible Zoom lag we always get. We need to work um, out what the exact latency is and then we can like time shit. So mm. then. Actually, no, I just sync it all up in post. We just have to like mute. You sync it up in post. Well, we'll need we just to do. have we'll to just like ignore recording. the get, other get person. A, um... You've just got to commit. As soon as you start well, singing, I was just, just going to say like your own time. Just mute the other person. Now, guys, clearly the only way is put on a click track and record it separately. Yeah. <laughs> One at a time and yep. then sync it up yep. after. It's the only way. This is our commitment <laughs> to the cause. Uh, but uh, yeah, God, my mind is just blown by the fact that we can, in theory, uh, 
Which I guess like time is relative. But yeah, you, you can know, like slow, slow time relatively anyway, right? Mm. It just depends depends how fast you're going. Fuck. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Really that's, 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 yeah. That's what Einstein was it, saying. Right. What is it? The, yeah, we're on, we're because, on Einstein because, now. Because yeah. the theory of relativity. Because the faster you're going, right, the closer to the speed of light, the faster mm. the universe's time goes around you, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. the whole idea of you go away at the speed of light and come back and hundreds of years have passed. That's right. But if you're still mm -hmm. going really, really or you're slowly. hanging out by a black hole. Yeah. Then. <laughs> just for fun. As you do. As you do. I hang out by black holes all the but time. But then that's your, so the universe's time goes by faster. However, your longevity within the space of the universe would then be longer as well. Yeah, you would yeah. live to see older parts of the universe than if you were to go slowly. Yeah, that's right. And that it is slightly different, the, you know, time dilation and relativity and all that. It is slightly different mm -hmm. because as you speed up, your gravity increases, and that's what causes time dilation to happen around. Oh, your gravity increases, so your mm -hmm. entropy increases. So, yeah, in a way, ah. but but it, it is relative. It doesn't necessarily, like we said, doesn't affect your personal lifetime. It just affects the you know the relationship between you and another mm -hmm. spot in the universe. And yeah, everyone else. Yeah. So, and it is a slightly different thing because what we're talking about more is simply using energy more efficiently right right and and life uses energy so efficiently that it has surplus and that's why cells replicate because mm. they have enough juice inside of them to just make another one of themselves right yeah God. and that was a really which is just whack when you think about it oh, right like super the whack. fact that they're just they do that yeah fuck. and there, <laughs> this was actually a really because we were talking about the statistical odds of us even being here you know life even starting in this universe that's tends seemingly tends towards chaos mm. so often and in 2015 a man called something england i'll send you the article afterwards was doing mm. doing research on dna and, and replication in regards to thermodynamics and he came to the conclusion that replicating yourself reproduction and using mm -hmm. dna is uh, simply a simpler way, a uh, easier way, again, just a path of least resistance, a more statistically likely way to retain energy for longer. So he, mm -hmm. he said, we actually shouldn't be surprised that life exists. He said, so when you have a few things mm. in a big bath of energy, like in the ocean or in an atmosphere, uh, or he said, if you shun, if you just get a, a bunch of molecules on a petri dish and shine a light on it, he said, you shouldn't be surprised if you start to see a plant forming. Mm. It's simply a more a more viable way, it, and it is of all the options, right? Of all the options, there's a lot of options for life. Obviously, because we have so many different mm. such a diverse range such. of life. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Asgast actually reference this they 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 they're going to make a video about it but you guys get the inside scoop Ooh, and Sasha yes. already did a video about it but they they describe a cell as a little portion of the universe of the a little portion of the dead universe that has cornered itself off separated itself mm. to do its own thing and they said this thing i relate this thing is very interesting because of entropy right and they said we won't talk about it we'll talk yeah. about it in another video and and this is because of the lipids and how they how it organizes itself to have low entropy inside, even though mm. thermodynamics still wins out. And because of that excess, Overall. life is able to yeah. reproduce and evolve over time. God. You know? And that that brings us to today, where we have this massive ecosystem on the whole planet, which is yeah. sustainable, right? Just operating from the sun's energy, 
the water cycle, the food cycle, which is like the mm. carbon and the, the nitrogen and the phosphorus, all that stuff constantly cycling around just from the sun's mm. energy. And within which, that sustainable, you know, low maintaining of low entropy, there's surplus, there's extra, which is how we then evolve, right? With that extra energy mm. that's available, we can, we can do new stuff. We can mm. try things out. We can and fail and still other things will try things out and succeed. So overall, there is a net evolution, a net gain of you know, literally physically matter because every individual human goes through the whole evolution uh, in their lifetime. If you think about when you're in the womb, you start off as a single mm. cell and then you're two cells and then you're four yeah. and then you're eight and then you're a tiny lizard and then you're a small fish and then you're just <laughs> literally like yep man i remember literally though days. literally literally though that's that's the development of the nervous system it's yeah. wild and that's wow. that's just information coded into dna so all 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 things that life has learned which took like billions of years to develop like a four odd billion years the human can go through in a in nine months and the, the most important part to recognize is that you're literally gaining matter over time, right? You start mm. off as one cell and now we are billions and trillions of cells as full grown adults. Mm. And, you know, that we, so we grow and we reach a sort of stable size and then we can maintain mm. that size for a while, but we do gradually accumulate a bit more over time, over our life, which eventually wears us out and kills us. And you think of a tree, which mm. just gets bigger and bigger until it's too big for itself and it falls over. Mm. You know, so it's it's a very it's a different way of using energy. It's a more efficient way of using energy, but the Lord still does apply mm. to life always. And so life is sustainable fundamentally. fundamentally. It should be a sustainable right. system. And then we humans come in and we're <laughs> like, you know what? You know how nifty is oil? It's just like <laughs> all these amazing packets of entropy that I'm just gonna burn at a quicker rate than the world can faster. Handle. Live fast, right? <laughs> that's, it, that's it. That's it. That's the human race's general vibe. Yeah, so, um, so that's obviously in terms of if we ever want to consider, you know, uh, prolonging, avoiding or prolonging this heat death, uh, the first port of call is to just reestablish sustainability on planet Earth because mm. what I'm going to talk about next uh, require that is like the bedrock, you know, and life has already mm -hmm. shown us that it's possible because it's been around for 4 billion years running off the energy from the sun. Mm -hmm. So, and we've just come along and with that surplus, it has evolved to have technology. So it, technology is just a natural part of evolution, but we have now mm -hmm. with our newfound power, sort of fucked up the sustainable cycles <laughs> on earth. So that's definitely a first port of call from mm. a purely just thermodynamic perspective is to just mm. become sustainable on planet earth again, because that way we will once again have surplus, you know, now we're running out when we should have surplus. So how are we supposed to continue evolving if we're running out of energy? And the sun has another 5 billion years left. So mm, there's, we're going to expire well before that. Well, at this rate. At the rate yeah, right yeah. now, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. And that's what all the, the, the climate crisis movement is about, is about, well, why can't we just combine modern technology with the ancient wisdom and just do what life was doing before, but even better because we should be able to mm. do it better without. Because we should be doing better. Yeah. We shouldn't be doing worse with all the like research and understanding that we have. That's right. 
we should if always be doing better than our previous serious. generation because we're always learning from mm. the the triumphs and mistakes mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. whoever came before. We're standing on the shoulders of giants, as That's you right. said. That's right. Yet we seem to be falling off because it's getting a bit high. And, and, well, and, because the instant gratification tends to be more. Oh, there's so much psychological, uh, you know, reasoning behind why we are how we are today, and mm. there's a lot of. Yeah, we there's lots of reasons that humans are still, you know, buying more meat than they need and supporting the massive wheat industry, which causes huge amounts of deforestation and stuff like that. And at the end of the mm. day, it does, all that stuff does come down to the individual. Because why would those big corporate farmers stop doing what they're doing when they're still making money from it? Yeah, like, mm. that's dumb. So I don't blame mm-hmm. them. I blame the people giving them their money which I am a part of, you know, we all are a part of because you can't, you know, lots of people are vegetarian, but red meat is an important part of the human diet. And so I try to tell people that less is best. And if you, if you Mm. shop more diversely, you know, then the farmers will want to farm more diversely and then that'll be a more sustainable way of farming. So Mm. that, that, that does come down to the individual person, I believe. And there's a lot of psychology around why people don't do that because of instant gratification you know, and, and what's easiest path of least resistance. We all have a tendency towards entropy. We all have a tendency to just lie down on the bed and do nothing all day. Mm-hmm. You know, that is a very common <laughs> thing because gravity sucks. It's always, <laughs> always pulling you down, man. So why fight it when I could <laughs> just lay and chill? Yeah. So why yeah. fight it? That's right. So why fight it? So that brings us to mm. the next thing I'd like to talk about. Let's, uh, mm-hmm. let's assume, let's go a little bit into the future and say, humans have become sustainable on earth once more. We've we've got green farms that have trees in them that are, you know, helping the planet overall. We've got heaps of renewable energy sources set up and we are now, we are back to a nice equilibrium where we even have surplus. So we've got a healthy, happy population. Everyone's working, everyone's productive, you know, what, what happens next? And this is where uh, my favorite concept in the history of concepts comes I've in. been waiting for you to bring oh. this one up. The Dyson Swarm. Are you familiar right. with the Dyson Swarm, Kate? No, a Dyson is a type of vacuum cleaner, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the very good one, actually. The best on the market. <laughs> Hashtag Dyson. Give so me I'm not heard. sponsored by Dyson. Although I would Dyson, love to be sponsored by Dyson. They make a good money. pet hair uh, vacuum cleaner yeah. to help me with my Hondo entropy problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, and the Dyson vacuum cleaner does in a way you know suck up all that detritus that has accumulated everywhere and put it all back in one spot but it's more like a mm. like a black hole <laughs> mm. it's very, still very high entropy inside the vacuum cleaner but at least it's all contained in one tight spot <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. but uh-huh. no so a dyson swarm is actually well most people know it as a dyson sphere and uh, Kazatskast does it. I love Kazatskast. It's so good. Or in a nutshell, if you don't know how to spell Kazatskast, do <laughs> uh, an awesome video on how to build a Dyson sphere. And, and they do end up calling it a Dyson swarm because uh, it's just more practical. And the idea mm-hmm. is basically a mega structure built around a sun that collects its energy, harvesting what? the sun's energy directly. So, so like solar panels, but with extra steps. So instead of, because on Earth, the amount of energy that hits Earth from the sun is mm-hmm. one billionth of the energy that the sun releases every second. 
Okay, that seems like we're missing out. Yeah, so... Seems a little bit less efficient than it could be. Well, it shows how efficient life is because we have not only... Yeah, because we don't need much. No, we don't need much. That's right. And we've not only survived, but evolved on one billionth of the sun's energy. And do you want to know just how much energy the sun releases per second? I'm terrified. Please tell. (laughs) Okay. It is 100 trillion megaton nuclear warheads per second. Fuck. Per second. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Fuck. Yeah, that's a lot of freaking energy. Um, yes, sir. <laughs> please yes, sir. give no human the power to harness that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Well, this is where it gets very interesting because uh, it's a lot of energy. And and the mm-hmm. the idea of the, the practical approach to building a Dyson sphere or a Dyson swarm is to actually have a bunch mm. of drones. <coughs> Cheap. Bless, Bless you. you. Thank you. <laughs> a bunch of cheap drones in orbit around the sun because, of course, a rigid structure around the sun, uh, if if some piece of debris hit it, the whole thing would, would break collapse away. Because so, it would require every part of it to stay standing. That's right, that's right. So if it's mm. drones, then a few can get wiped out and you just send up a replacement few, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yep. these drones are all basically mirrors and you program them to redirect the sun's energy to collection points. And then the next big hurdle is storing that much energy, which is because the more energy you have, the the higher its entropy output. So the harder it is to store it. So that's a, another technological challenge that we'll have to face in the future. But before mm-hmm. we get to that, I actually have a few ideas for a solution to that, actually. Yeah. But before we get to all that, let's just look at this Dyson, Dyson Swarm. Because like you said, right now, if you gave someone the computer that controls those drones, there is nothing to stop that person pointing all that energy at Earth and causing a massive laser beam that kills everyone. Yep, that right? was where my brain first went, right? to be honest. Yeah. That's what I would do. And so, <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, let's not give you I'm, that. I'm including myself in the no single person should be allowed access to that power. Um, so this is, why, this is why whenever I talk about building a Dyson Swarm, I say there is a precursor. It, the thing that has to happen first is sustainability on Earth. And the only way that's going to happen is if every human on Earth lives ethically, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about this ethical revolution has to happen before we get to that sort of technology because otherwise we'll just die off first, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll die before mm-hmm. we even get to harness the power of the giant laser beam that could kill of us the all. Death that's star. right. That's I right. mean, we need to get to a point to. Be able to kill ourselves to off in a cooler way. That's right. So, <laughs> so, we're, so we have to assume that if we have built this thing, we're now an evolved enough people that we're not going to fucking kill ourselves with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're going to choose to in, increase the longevity of time itself over, you know, war. Yeah. We're gonna. We have to assume that this is a precursor. It's a. There's a better word for than precursor. Prerequisite. Prerequisite. Thank you, Matt. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So an ethical revolution is a, a necessary prerequisite before you start getting into Dyson Swarm territory. So assume. I don't want to go too philosophical, but like ha- the chances of that happening. What do we think? Very low. Because well, if you people. look at the trend so far, all life in all history has ultimately worked together for survival. Has it not? Isn't that why we're here? Mm. We're pack animals. We tend to lump ourselves into little civilizations. But the problem is, is that 
wanting to have survival within our own small collective societies and things is what ultimately leads to mm, the larger destruction, the right? Because others. we're at, like, my way of surviving is better than your way of surviving, and your way of surviving threatens my way of surviving, so I'm going to wipe you out. And there's a mutual assured mm. destruction there, you know? Mm. Mm. That's that's where the conflicts generally arises because we can't agree in what the best way of surviving is. Oh yeah, and that's mm. that's that's why I'm saying you know this ethical revolution is a is a prerequisite because that is that is every human being recognizing the fact that we are stronger together because that's how that's the basic uh, evolution of life is. First of all, you look at a cell, a modern cell today. And it's full of, it's got all these little parts, you know, all these parts in the cell, like the mitochondria and all mm. yada, yada, yada. Powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> and once upon a time, the mitochondria was a separate creature. They'd, yeah. You know? Do you know this, Matt? No. This is the coolest. This is this so is the cool. Coolest. People talk about mitochondria being the powerhouse of the cell, but the real winner is the the, the origin story of the mitochondria. Oh, yeah. Teamwork. Mm. Mm. Do you want to tell it, Bodhi? Sure. So basically... Uh, back when all the cells was just in a big chemical soup and they weren't mm. all, the cells were there, but they weren't living in these amazing forms that we take now because mm. we, are, we are just colonies of cells. And mm. basically the cells have learned over time that when you come together, you get more energy, you get more security, stronger you together. get food, you get more food, you know? So this mitochondria was once just a sort of cell mm. and it was a, a, a plant cell, a photosynthetic cell. And there were carnivorous cells and photosynthetic cells. And one day a carnivorous cell ate one of these photosynthetic mm -hmm. cells, but it didn't die. It lived on inside the carnivorous cell. And now it had shelter. It didn't have to worry about other predators because the bigger sh cell around it was dealing with that. Mm -hmm. It just did what it did best was produce energy. energy. And now this mm. bigger cell had more energy because it had this other part inside of it. And that was the first ever multicellular organism. Well, not even that was no. It, they they fused yeah. pretty much. They became essentially one. Yeah, it's right. still it's it's like you know if you've seen Steven Universe, how the gems fuse. <laughs> they don't become like a multi personality gem. They yeah. become a new individual right. with parts of both of their you know original gems. Greater they're than a fusion. The they are parts. functioning as a fusion. Right. You know, and so that's that's essentially what yeah. Um, cells that have mitochondria are—they're yep. a fusion of the the energy right. cell and the the that's, chompy that's chomp cell. We right. get the best of both worlds. Chill yeah. it out, get take it slow, and then we rock out the show. Both worlds. <laughs> and then, you know, yeah. over time, cells themselves, like the not not parts of the cells, but the cells themselves, have started coming together and forming colonies. Because once again, when they did that, there was. More, more strength in numbers, you know, more safety, more retention of heat, you know, so you keep more mm. energy inside instead of letting as much out. It's like having good insulation, right? Mm. So there's just a basic principle of life that small parts come together and form a bigger thing and it, that works better. And that mm. whole ecosystem on earth is just a manifestation of that because things still eat each other and this and that and there's competition and there's parasites, but ultimately... Well, until we came along. Ultimately, <laughs> this was how the earth was. It was a whole bunch of living creatures, all overall working together for the benefit of the whole, you know? Mm. And this is just what humans have forgotten, right? And it's all, all so all we have to do is remember. So you, the question was, what are the odds of this happening? And my belief is very high because it is what has happened before time and time again for all of evolution. Mm. 
you have a much more hopeful, optimistic outlook than That's I do. Because and I of, respect uh, that greatly. It's because of quantum mechanics, actually, that I've decided to have an optimistic. <laughs> I believe yeah. that just by having an optimistic outlook, you make that future more likely. Yeah. Okay. We can get like we can that. get into that on a different episode about quantum yeah, mechanics. Yeah, that's a whole nother. I was going to say that's a whole nother show, and I'm here for yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. How quantum mechanics justifies optimism? Yes, please. Yeah. Pretty. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. You know, that's also the mm. power of visualization and shit like that. Positive manifestation, all that fun mm. stuff. Yeah. Literally, just you know, by by doing it yourself, you're you spread that sort of behavior. So that's what I try mm. to teach kids at work: is you know, practice teamwork here. Because that helps the world get better at teamwork. Mm. Because we're part of the world. Mm. Pretty simple. Yeah. So we've let's take let's take a hypothetical, just like we did with our cars. Let's say yeah. everyone on Earth is a evolved ethical being. We're sustainable. We're, our technology is continuing to evolve and develop, and we're building Dyson swarms. Right. Mm-hmm. Let's say that humanity has spread out among the stars. We've terraformed planets and other solar systems, and we have Dyson swarms around those suns as well. Let's say we've figured out how to store that energy, which I won't get into it, but the hydrogen. way- The way- <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna say it. It might be hydrogen. It might be pumping the energy out of a sun and into a black hole because a black hole's <sighs> internal temperature is actually very close to absolute zero. So there's many ways. That's a concept. It is a concept. And we can just Fuck. brush over it for today. But <laughs> in this hypothetical. Just casually, <laughs> we've managed, we figured out how to harness not only the sun, but also black holes moving straight right. along. So in our hypothetical, <laughs> no one, no one's even considering using these Dyson swarms as weapons of mass destruction because we're just, we're beyond that. You know, we're, we're about the, we're about the survival of the whole and the community and the teamwork. That's what everything's about mm. in this amazing future. And we're spread throughout, let's say just the Milky Way. So just the Milky okay. Way with terraform. Just the Milky Way, small goals. Yeah, small goals. Small, well, the universe is freaking massive. Like the yeah, Milky no, Way is true. like a pinprick compared to the rest of it. Anyway, so in this hypothetical scenario where we've got terraformed planets that have sustainable ecosystems on them. We've got Dyson swarms around the suns and maybe even around the black holes. We're storing this energy. What this is, the best metaphor I can have for it is to say, we have put a dam around time. So we've taken Mm. the sun as a raging river of time, of energy being wasted into space. And we've captured it, stored it, and now it's a trickling little stream. Oh. Like that. That's such wholesome imagery, and I'm just trying to work out how to turn that into a tattoo. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, mate, that would Fuck, be. That's I. That I love that. Yeah, that's I it. I love that. That's it. And the idea is that once we give up, like once we're sustainable on Earth again, we can continue to evolve and create Dyson spheres, Dyson swarms. Mm. Once we have that set up, we'll have heaps of time and surplus energy to refine mm. our technology further and further. And technology is already at an exponential increase. So given enough time, technically, they say you should not be able to avoid this heat death. But if you think mm-hmm. about it, it's like one of those one of those functions that's constantly mm. approaching zero. But as the but closer you get, it there. never gets there, right? Because mm. as time goes on, you get more and more efficient. So you mm. constantly... every time yeah. you get half... The amount closer to something. That's right. You never get there never, because never every time there. you're halving how close and you get. And if you think about just the sheer quantity of energy that we would have at our disposal, if we were using it at the rate we use on Earth right now, but 
instead of one billionth, we have all of it that would last 999,999 times longer than we're going to last right now. So Mm. even without extra efficiency, just making fuller use of what we have available, that's going to drastically increase. Oh, I forgot to turn the fan off. That's okay. I'll just be a little bit nicer. That's going to drastically increase literally the lifespan of the Milky Way. Dang. Dang. Fucking hell. Yeah. Potentially indefinitely. Dang. Dang, right? So we... Yeah. Right. Fuck. So when we talk about meaning of life, yeah, that's right. I'm bringing that up. And the purpose oh, of life. Someone had to. Potentially. <laughs> the the purpose of life is to, if not, because um, you can't stop entropy, but prolong mm-hmm. life. Slow it down. Slow down mm-hmm. and prolong life. Uh, pr- prolong the, not, uh, sorry, not prolong life. Prolong the existence of the universe mm-hmm. and stave off yeah. mm-hmm. heat death. Well, prolong life at the most sort of fundamental definition of life existing the universe manifesting life is its own defense mechanism against its own heat death where the universe's immune system if Uh, in a way in a way and if you you can take it one step further to humanity specifically because life on earth if humanity have had never become civilized so to speak and we were still hunter gatherers you know it could have potentially survived until the sun went out but then the sun goes out so it's actually not sustainable in the bigger picture, right? Mm. Only if, only with this technology could we achieve true sustainability. So technology is a natural step in evolution of mm. just getting better at what it's already doing. Mm. Right? And these Dyson swarms is just the next freaking step in what we've mm. already been doing, reaching true sustainability. Because right now we're dependent on the sun and most of that energy is wasted. We only get one billionth mm. of it. With these Dyson swarms in place and more planets with life on it, there's more life overall and more time for that life to, you know, continue itself Mm. and to just enjoy existence. Fuck. Fuck. My brain is doing somersaults and I love it. So this is where existentialism, I think, uh, falls flat on its face. Classic existentialism. Because we say the universe is so big and we're so small, so we don't matter at all. It's like, no, 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 no. Mm. We're incredibly rare and special. And our potential is enormous if we could fully realize it. Well, it's like, Matt, with the, you know, you said that like where the universe's immune system and mm. the way what I think what I love about doing the immune system as a psychom topic is all the analogies where you get to anthropomorphize all the cells mm. and their different roles and whatever. Because it's, you know, it's such a system that we can put in the perspective of human societies and the way that we function. Yeah. And I guess you can then extrapolate that like in the reverse. The reason that system is so anthropomorphizable is because we, as humans and the way we operate on this larger system is all just governed by these rules and it just applies applies on both a cellular level and on a larger level like it's all just these the same rules applying and and so universal you know human bodies want to survive human cells want to survive human civilizations want to survive yeah Yeah. that's it that's it and if i Ah. yeah so that's like (laughs) That's like this is cool. It's like the opposite of what we started with, right? The start, Such a geek. Yeah. The start oh is God. like the start is, was like okay, the universe is eventually going to die based on thermodynamics, and now we've reached this point where, well, mm. that's not necessarily true. Yeah, yeah. Because wasn't it was it Einstein or someone who said that like the the second law of thermodynamics or entropy is gonna is the only thing that's never going to be disproven? Yeah, lots of people have said that. It's a very 
found out. And it actually, well, in a sense, again, on the quantum scale, you know, the first law of thermodynamics is broken all the time because stuff constantly bursts in and out of mm. existence, which is creation and destruction of energy. But overall, right. the it's, it's positive and negative things. So they just destroy each other out and all cancels out. So mm. it still does, you know, and quantum stuff's always been a bit weird. But that second law is is the most interesting one. And the third law sort of shows us, you know, the potential solution, which is just the fact that you can actually, you can't stop entropy, but you can slow it down by using your en- energy mm. more efficiently. Live slow, die old. <laughs> Live slow, die old. That's right. Well, yeah. and in terms of longevity for one life, let's take let's take it back to, to, to finish on a very concrete note. <laughs> concrete. <laughs> on a very personal note for that all our listeners can relate to is, you know, entropy management in your own body. And there are many ways to do it. Like, obviously, you need to eat food. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, you will just simply I've run out. that's ideal. It does. <laughs> yeah, it does help, I found. You need to eat food. Otherwise, you will just run out because you're constantly radiating energy in the form of body heat. And every time you move, you're losing some energy. So you need to eat. And if you eat too much, you will accumulate entropy faster. So you've got mm. to find that sweet spot, you know, balance, yin yang, all that, all that ancient jazz. Mm. Finding that sweet spot in how much you eat. This is why they say, you know, fasting, intermittent fasting is good for you because it gives your stomach lining a chance uh, to eat itself and replen- and like you know, start from scratch. Mm-hmm. And if you never fast, your stomach never has a chance to do that, and your gut slowly builds up and builds up with old stomach lining, right? And mm-hmm. that that can be a major cause of of suffering and early death. Right. Then there's exercise. And then once again, if you do no ex- exercise, your muscles will just decay. And if you mm. over-exercise, they will burn out faster. Any notes on that, Kate? Mm. Is that true? <laughs> Personally, I've never experienced either end of that spectrum. <laughs> I'm always in that balanced sweet spot of just the right amount of exercise. <laughs> again, I'm not trying to have a go at anyone. I'm just saying, <laughs> and, and as scientists, we should we should be, recognize these experiences where we have been on the extremes as evidence for the truth of of you know this entropy management of finding that sweet spot in both our eating and our exercise. Mm-hmm. And there's more ways. Of course, we've talked about cleaning up the house. And if you just spend every day of your life cleaning up the house, well, that's going to be a pretty shit life, even though your house is clean. <laughs> there's no yeah. point keeping your house super duper ordered all the time because it's just going to get dirty again. You, But a, a little bit goes a long way every day. You know what I mean? Or every, I, I don't even say every day anymore with, with <laughs> any of these things, whether it's exercise or eating well or fasting or cleaning, uh, I say uh, a few times a week is a pretty good goal. Mm. It's pretty slack. But it, may, it really motivates you to at least do that, and then you actually you actually get quite a bit done every week if you just think just think mm, not every day small. Some some people like a little bit every day. Awesome. Uh, for me, I like thinking about it in terms of a few times a week. And there's one last one that I really like to talk about with entropy management in your own body. Well, I gotta also have a side note that when I talk about exercise, that includes stretching. Because if you exercise mm. and don't stretch, you're just fucking yourself over. Do I exercise? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do heaps of yoga. We're fine. You, yeah. however. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. Yoga is an excellent entropy management exercise because it's exercise, it's stretching, and the mm. final space where entropy accumulates in the human body is in your mind. Who here mm. has racing thoughts often? Oh, boy. <laughs> 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 right? It's a joke. Everyone Never. does. 
who doesn't, right? Everyone does. And and mm. meditation is 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 basically cleaning up your mind. You know, mm. I, I'd love to do some actual research on this, get some numbers down and stats and shit like that. But all you have to do is to just do it in your own life as an experiment and you'll see what I'm talking about. There's lots of research supporting mindfulness and meditation. Yeah, that's right. Um, and as a, you know, clinical tool for actual mental illnesses, but also just yeah, in day-to-day right. right. feelings of well-being. Yeah. And there's lots um, of applications for it, like it can help you focus this and that. But I like to describe it in terms of a room. And over time, you you get experiences and memories and you learn things and yada, 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 and your mind slowly fills up with clutter. And it's not, it's useful clutter if, if it wasn't so felt cluttered you know it's useful mm. info if it wasn't so cluttered in your mind just like how your clothes build up in your room and stuff like that mm. and then once you put it all it's away it's great that you bought that pair of shoes but the fact that they're in the bottom back corner of your bed means that you're never going to get to wear them yeah that's right that's mm. right and we've got this idea of having a nice feng shui nice workspace so when you meditate it's just like for me it's like okay i get all the quantum mechanics stuff i put it in that cupboard over there i get all the entropy stuff i put it over there everything from my friendships and relationships that goes in that corner over there like in the cupboard so and then suddenly in my mind there is this space this sort of clarity space in mm. which you can get much better thinking and reasoning and understanding because you've just done a bit of work and just like with the house Meditation is not the sort of thing you can do heaps of in a week and then never have to do it again because it's entropy, man. It's like just going to build up mm. again. It's that few times a week, even mm. once a week is better than nothing, you know? Just a little bit of med time spending meditating on your breath and you will just start to notice how cluttered your mind is. And if you just keep at your practice, it will declutter eventually and it will accumulate again. That's why it's a lifetime process. But the point is that you then have space in which to work in your mind. And this goes for your home, your body, the planet, the universe. If we can get our entropy management down packed, we last longer, we're happier. It's no, a, I agree. I fully support doing yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I'm really bad at meditating without moving my body at the same time mm -hmm. at just like sitting there and doing it. Yeah, well, but if I'm also moving, I find the <laughs> then same I can... thing. I quite like whenever I have tried meditation in the past, I've always mm. found doing something like Tai Chi or Qigong. Yeah, but that's right. Been super, super mm. useful because it's a way to kind of like, I can channel my thoughts to be mm. present into the movement. It, it's that a triple movement. threat. It's a triple threat. Same with yoga. You're exercising, mm. you're stretching, and you're calming and clearing your mind simultaneously. It's all three in mm. one. And that's why I think these Eastern philosophies are just beautiful in how they have figured out ways to manage the highly scientific principles uh, without even having to really know about them or call them by what they what we call them today. Like no one was saying... Mm when they came up with yoga, no one was saying, oh, yes, it's to manage your entropy. But, you know, <laughs> it fucking is. That's what it does. Yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe we should market it as such and more people would be in. It'll, it'll mean like the very kind of Eurocentric elitist kind of people with that 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 kind of you know elitism over the Western philosophies and mm. mindsets and sciences will be like, will actually start paying attention to it because more and more mm. I think we're seeing mm within academia and those scientific communities, a lot more attention is going towards those practices. Like mm -hmm. the idea mm. of mindfulness is becoming more popular now, but you know, fucking, you know, cultures have been doing it for hundreds of fucking years and it's been working great for them, you know? That's yeah. Right. While, 
all of the Western cultures are all here being sad and shit. But hey, we've That's got right. money and tea, I guess. It's so just like, like just like fasting. <laughs> you know? Fasting has been a common yogic practice, Eastern practice for a long time. The Chinese, the Indians, they've all been saying mm. eat less, right? In general, just in general, just eat less. And actually, the, some gurus say they don't call it intermittent fasting. They actually call it intermittent eating. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> once Western science came along and studied it and proved it to be true, then it became popular on a global scale. It became scale. a thing. Yeah. yeah. And it, it is a bit of a racist thing. You know, they say, how come when Indians came up with this, you know, no one listened. But now that the Western people are, are saying it, everyone's listening. It's like, oh, because Indians just got the wrong color skin, dude. Mm. <laughs> mm. But, you know, at, mm-hmm. le- at least now the knowledge is out there and it is gaining popularity. Yeah. And this helps. Yeah. I'm sure this podcast will help. I like to think that that is our role. Uh, well, part of our role, oh. communicate. Well, communicating science is part of our role. It's our entire <laughs> role. Our entire no, role. you know, like, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes taking those concepts. <laughs> yeah, well, pe- people know about stuff, but they don't necessarily practice it, or they don't know how to implement it in their life. They don't know how it affects them, and that's why I love the word concretize because you take mm. this idea like entropy, and you say. And you can even say, talk about how a Dyson swarm will extend the lifespan of the universe. But at the end of the day, how does it affect me? Well, yeah. it affects yeah. you in how you, you know, how you look after and maintain your body. It's, it, entropy management mm. is just a fancy way of saying good maintenance, right? Mm. It's like maintaining your car. You've got to replace the clutch. You've got to drive it a certain way so that you don't have to fix things as much. You mm-hmm. got to look after your home and keep that tidy. Preventative maintenance. Yeah, it's prevent. Mm. It's preventative. It's you know, it's what our medical model should be based around is preventative mm. rather than fixing problems once they arise. Yeah. Maybe even the prison system as well, and the justice <laughs> system. Quite a few systems in our oh, society, but that's a whole nother. Say, that's, that's a whole nother kettle of fish that we don't. Where that that's we... that's not what this show is for. And, and and if I leave you with one thing, it's that in, in my understanding of quantum mechanics and also just human behavior, because we do we learn by watching others, right? We do copy each other quite a lot. It's a survival instinct. So mm. by living a bit more in a way that is in line with what life, what your cells try to do, which is to work together and to manage the entropy. Oh, a word we haven't mentioned yet is homeostasis, which is Mm. the body's way of balancing all its chemical levels, which is essentially keeping its entropy nice and low at a constant rate. So by being a bit more like them, like what we're made of ourselves, you, you spread that sort of behavior. You do, you spread that sort of behavior and therefore in, in a very l- large context, you're making this future because there are possible futures where we fail or where, you know, humans die off and life on earth continues until the sun goes out and that's that. Those mm-hmm. are all possibilities. But by living in accordance with good entropy management, where you're doing it in your own life, you are increasing the likelihood of the future where we have Dyson swarms and an ethical revolution and terraformed mm. planets all over the cosmos. So do yoga and eat vegetables <laughs> and we'll be able to survive time. And clean up your room. And clean up your room. <laughs> Fuck. Again, on, on, this. Only a few times a week, all right, guys? Don't go too hard on yourselves. It's all about if sustainability. If that, that was going to be the, like, you know, key takeaway message of today's <laughs> podcast, I wouldn't have had you on. Well, it's called lead, um, leading by example is sort of the only way to go about these things sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that might be time to shuffle us along. Uh, It's a bit of a longer episode today, but I'm here for it. It 
every second has been worth it so far. And we're not done yet because as with every episode, we do have a listener question to tackle today. And this is this is a cool one. It's a bit of a longer, I'm going to read the full question as it is because I think it, it'll help in the way that I'm going to answer it. I think um, it's kind of fitting that this episode's a longer one because we're talking about slowing down a and the bit, yeah, elongation right. of, of, you know, of time. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's, mm. it's that concept manifesting itself within yeah. like mm. the structure of the episode. Mm-hmm. We planned it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just like last season, I think our episodes are getting longer as the thing goes on. Because... Jesus Christ, we're only at episode six, Kate. Let's, I know. <laughs> let's calm down. Um, how long is the end of the season going to be? No. Okay. So today's listener question was sent in from Anne and this is, this is what Anne wrote. So why do we dislike certain flavors or food? Yes, there are many factors such as conditioning, i.e. tasting new foods, allergies, food poisoning, etc., creating a negative association with certain foods. My question is whether everyone has an innate dislike of something for no known reason. I have never liked mustard and can often detect it. I have acquaintances who dislike coriander. <coughs> hey. Uh, yeah, fuck coriander. This is why I thought you were going to like this. Yeah. I'm going to get to coriander. <laughs> I'm going to get to coriander. Oh, you uh, better. <laughs> but yeah, I have acquaintances who dislike coriander, chocolate, green peas, etc., etc. And you don't like why chocolate. Why is it so? And I don't like chocolate. So I'm a little bit of a strange one. No, oh I God, know, buddy. You're so quirky. <laughs> you're not like other uh, people. My God. I'm, you're different. Yeah, I know. Um, I just... Yes. So why? why? That's 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 the question. So there was kind of a lot of parts to that question, right? There was, you know, the fundamental question of why do we dislike certain things um, and some people, not others. And then Anne seemed to, like, she sort of knew half the answer, yeah. or, you know, 80% of the answer already, which factors such as conditioning, allergies, food poisoning, et cetera, creating a negative association with certain foods, which is, like, definitely, definitely a thing. So, like, dad, for example, Matt, um, mm. like, our, our dad doesn't like seafood of any kind mm. and he's allergic to crustaceans, right? He's not allergic to fish. He's only allergic to like prawns and shrimp and stuff, but he just doesn't like fish or doesn't like anything that's been in the sea because his brain has built this association that like, mm. if I eat shit that was in the sea, I get really unwell. Yeah. And that's, that's a I thing that I need to stay away from. And that, so it's become an aversive taste to him, which is that's, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, and you know, it can happen with food poisoning. So for a while, Matt, you didn't like tomato chili relish, yeah. right? Because you'd kind of had that association that it gave <laughs> you appendicitis. True. Yeah. Um, and I, that's, that's I, a I common a thing. It's actually it strange before. that you like it now because that's actually a common thing that food poisoning can make mm. people dislike a certain food for the I rest of their life. I had a similar thing happen to me with, um, caramel fudge for a bit. I went to Belgium and I picked up a stomach bug mm. and like just the day before that I'd gotten a whole bunch of caramel fudge because it was delicious and I loved it. But then for a good, uh, probably like five or six years after that, I, I couldn't stand fudge because it made me feel sick. But now, now I love it again. I've, mm. I've really fallen in love with it. So you're, you're interesting because apparently, you know, you can break those associations mm. quite comfortably. Whereas, yeah, a lot of people can't. And then another reason people don't like food is like, for example, something like haggis, which is just a disgusting concept. (laughs) And a lot of people are going to not like it because conceptually it's gross to them. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people don't like mushroom because the idea that it's a fungus weirds them out. Well, no, not, not, not even so much the actual sensory side of it, but the conceptual Mm -hmm. side that it's a fungus makes some people like, ugh. And that that the concept to them is like that's gross. Yeah, that's heard, a real thing. People, I don't people like know. that with meat as well. They say I actually like the taste. I don't care about the ethics. 
It's just sometimes I get a weird squishy bit and it reminds me that I'm eating a dead animal and that grosses me. 100% me. Like, (laughs) I don't eat meat and that is... 100% 100% like to me the idea of haggis is absolutely foul but the idea of like any meat that's the thing I like I actually quite like the taste of bacon and I don't really remember but like other meat you know especially like eating like chicken breast or something I'm like this yeah. is just like a bit of muscle of an animal like that's fucking my weird. brain's just like yep. I feel sick when I eat meat because what my brain is like this thing had a life it had an experience like you know other people can eat it whatever that's fine I'm not one of those people that's gonna mm. rat on you for not caring about that factor but the fact is my brain cares about that factor so much that I actually feel like oh I and dislike it when I taste something that reminds me that I'm eating flesh. (laughs) Um, So there's that. There's conceptual stuff and then there's, mm. you know, uh, association stuff that builds up over time. And obviously Matt has demonstrated, uh, what do they call it, neuro-linguistic reprogramming where you can alter your mm. alter your associations <laughs> by forming new ones with the same yeah. thing you can yeah. learn which to is love you know again <laughs> a way that people overcome phobias um exactly. if they relearn yeah. associations um and yeah so all of those things are definitely part of what creates our hugely diverse idea of taste but then Anne goes on to say is there my question is whether anyone had sorry, everyone has an innate dislike of something for, well, she says no known reason, but like there is a known reason and mm. it's it's literally biological. It's, mm. it's our taste receptors and our smell receptors because smell and taste are pretty much both very important components to what we consider flavor or yeah. taste. One and the same. Um, I mean, there's other factors as well. Like there's obviously um, mouthfeel we talked about in our listener yeah. question <laughs> two weeks ago. Um, where we talked about melted cheese and why it tastes better is part of that is the texture. Um, there's also like hot and cold and I like as in hot as in like chili, like capsaicin and cold as in like menthol or mint has that cooling sensation. You know, there are other dimensions to flavor as a Mm. experience, I guess is what it is. Um, but focusing on taste and smell as kind of the main ones and like taste, um, you have, taste receptors right and we all we've all heard of the what is it five different tastes the yeah. five main the kinds bitter, of taste: sweet, sweet sour sweet umami. sour salty bitter and umami yeah um and first of all it's a myth by the way that you, those are on different parts of the tongue yeah. the i tongue remember map, saying that in a textbook in like year two and i, I think i, I yeah. heard about that and getting debunked those are alternative facts yeah. um, <laughs> those are not true uh But what is true is that we have a different type of taste receptor, like a different cell that's a different shape that different. So like receptors essentially are like a lock and key. I think we've used this analogy before, but that's because it's the most conceptually easy one. I think a lock and key system where the lock is the receptor and the key is whatever binds to the receptor. Mm. Only certain Mm. keys fit Mm. certain locks and can unlock the door that sets off a cascade of whatever you want to happen. And so in this case with, with smell as well, there's different smell receptors that fit different key shaped molecules and you've got your taste which are your yeah your flavor your taste molecules that set off there are sweet ones there are salty ones there are bitter ones whatever and people vary in their different 
types of these receptors and most importantly in the number of these receptors that they have. So the people can actually be broken down into different categories. You can have your super tasters. These are the real names. I did not come up with I've this. The super taster. Yeah, which have heaps of these. They're called the fungiform papillae. They're little they're like little broccoli. Okay. On your That's tongue an adorable it's adorable word. Fungiform because mushroom shaped fungiform. fungiform. Um papillae. papillae. They're the little it, think of it like a head of broccoli, mm -hmm. as in all mm -hmm. the little, what are they called? The little florets, the little green bits, yeah, yeah. green Flor dots. Yeah. Flor Flor um, those are your taste cells or your taste receptors, right? Mm -hmm. And then on your larger fungiform papillae, mushroom-shaped thing, which is the the structure that holds all the taste receptors. Sort of like, 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 sort of like a tree. I guess like a tree. I don't know why I thought broccoli. I guess because I was thinking about food. And broccoli, so broccoli is quite bitter. Sort of yeah. Like you both have tree <laughs> things in the picture that I should have seen, but I was thinking about food. I broccoli. Because I was they, thinking they about them, broccoli. They call broccoli little you little green trees. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Broccoli trees. <laughs> but that that sort of thing. Um, and it's yeah, mushroom shaped. So that's and what so like. people, yeah, depending on whether you're a super taster or a sub taster or middle tasters, fall somewhere in between is your sensitivity because you just obviously if you have more taste receptors you're going to set off more of a reaction when you mm. put like, you know, you put that piece of food on your tongue, you put that chip on your tongue or whatever. Um, that's going to set off a shit ton more receptors if there are more there and it's going to send a stronger signal to your brain. And so your brain is going to taste something more strongly. Mm. Right. And so that's, that's a known thing. And it depends what's, what I find really interesting is that this is, it's your genetics, right? Because everything is your genetic code and the, what, whatever gene you have in your genetic code, that's the type of that protein. That's the type of that receptor that you're going to make. And this differs by like population and kind of like ethnic background in terms of where people are located. So people that are your sub tasters are really strongly linked to places like countries that had people so there was, I think, Indigenous Australians were kind of the odd group out that had a quite high proportion of the subtasters. and But then the other groups are populations that entered Europe from the Middle East after the last, last, ice, last ice age. So where you can track these populations to. So it's kind of in the Middle East, in India and in Europe. And you can kind of look at migration history of humans across the planet. And you can see that this population that had a large amount of this gene that means you essentially don't have a very sensitive tongue have, have all kind of come from the same spot. And you can think about that oh. sort of gene spreading and, and in a really... And which ones, which populations have more super tasters and which do, do you have that? information i don't have the higher super taster ones no i only found the study that listed the the, the non yeah because it's the, the way they test it it's really cool they actually they have a chemical it's called i'm gonna call it ptc because i can't pronounce the full long chemical name for it um and essentially it's a chemical that a particular if you have a particular gene or a collection of genes that code for these taste receptors you cannot taste this chemical You've got people that are like your super tasters that can taste it quite strong and it's very bitter to them. You've got your middle tasters that can taste it like a little bit. But there's a group that if you have a certain particular polymorphism or like type of this gene, you cannot taste PTC. They're called non-tasters. Mm. And so this study actually looked at the the non-taster, people with the non-taster gene and their geographic spread. But okay, so the cool thing about PTC and so why this is kind of 
interesting. And you can actually, you can buy PTC testing kits. I'm pretty sure I did this in like undergrad. I want to say psychology. I don't know why psychology though. We're learning mm. about taste maybe where you tasted the bit of paper and I'm pretty sure I'm a sub taster. Like I remember not being able to taste it, which makes sense because I drink double espressos and <laughs> doesn't explain why I don't like uh, chocolate, but I tend to not mind maybe bitter things Maybe that's more of a conditional thing rather um, than a genetic thing. Yeah, possibly. I had a really bad experience where I ate a lot of chocolate. Unsure. Mm. What was I saying? Oh yeah, so you can buy PTC test kits. Um, so Anne, if you're if you're really interested here as to whether this is why you don't like mustard, uh, you could buy a PTC test kit and find out whether you fall into the group of uh, super tasters by testing this. Um, and so yeah, people can either it just tastes like paper or they can taste this thing. And the really interesting thing is that PTC itself isn't found in food, right? But there are a number of chemical compounds which are very, very similar to PTC that create this kind of bitter taste. And many vegetables from the cabbage family have very, very high numbers of these. So things like broccoli, Brussels sprouts, and mustard, mustard plant, mustard mm, seeds right. have very high amounts of this chemical that's very similar to uh, PTC. That's interesting. And I was so say... maybe Anne is a super taster, and that's why she can detect mustard on like. I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are, Anne, on vegetables like broccoli and cabbage Mm, and Brussels Brussels sprouts. sprouts. Because I was going to say, oh, maybe I'm a super taster because I can't stand mustard either. But my favorite vegetables are cauliflower and Brussels sprouts Mm. and cabbage. Uh, Cruciferous vegetables are my favorite vegetables. So I don't know if that's... Well, it might be a different... It might be a different... I don't know if it's the same chemical in all of those plants or if they're slightly different but similar ones. So maybe yeah. your lock that you have that fits those keys fits the mustard key really well but yeah. doesn't fit the other keys. So that's why you can really taste the mustard but you can't really taste the the Brussels sprouts bitter component, which right. is the interesting because you can really taste the cauliflower soap thing. Um, and that's, you mean coriander. Oh, sorry, cauliflower. I didn't mean coriander. cauliflower. <laughs> coriander. Coriander. Yeah. Coriander soap thing, um, yeah. which I want to come to because Anne brought up um coriander so this is a perfect excuse to talk about it because coriander is an interesting one because it's not just a case well see it's not just a case of people being more sensitive to it gross i don't know Mm, because it's not one of the normal tastes that you taste for like it's not bitter like you know the bitter thing or it's not you know too sweet for you or too whatever because it's 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 okay okay so coriander <laughs> is a cool one because yeah, scientists pretty much were really intrigued. It's not unusual for people to dislike certain foods, yeah. but scientists were really intrigued by how like passionate coriander haters were. Like there was just this small group of the population, mm. about four to 14% of the population, depending on your cultural, uh, cultural background. Well, uh, genetic background. Mm. Um, what am I saying? Yeah. So small population that were very, very, very passionate that they hated it. That, you know, I There's think- There's a I, Facebook group I'm a part of that's like, mm-hmm. I hate coriander and they have merch and everything where it's- I like, love that. They, they post photos of themselves just going to like Woolworths and there's a bag of coriander and they're just flipping it off. Yeah. It's, people it's feel very strongly about this. Someone said coriander tastes like body odor smells. See, um, all of like the oh. things about how coriander tastes, for me personally- I have not necessarily equated it to like soap or BO or anything like that, but it's got a very distinct, strong flavor that I can pick immediately and I just don't Mm -hmm. like it. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of gambles that I take if I go to a Mexican place because they won't disclose if they put coriander in it and I take a Mm -hmm. bite into this and I can taste instantly if there's coriander in it and it just ruins the entire dish for me. 
So like, you know, I'll use ground coriander in cooking because the flavor is blend masked, but it's when you're using fresh mm. coriander or cilantro for American listeners. Yeah, true. We do have it's, American it's, listeners it's, cilantro. It's that specific fresh cilantro coriander leaf taste that's in something I can pick up on it immediately. Mm. And it's just so strong and off-putting and horrible and biting. Do you want to know, know why? Why? Tell yes. me why. Uh, so essentially... It's interesting that you don't equate it with soap because they I do have something that potentially explains why it might be soap, but you might okay. be part of a different... We'll see. So essentially, there's a particular genetic difference that they found. So they did twin studies, first of all. Um, they looking... So twin studies, essentially, they compare the something that you see in identical twins with something that you see in fraternal twins because of of course identical twins share the same genome right they have the exact same dna Mm. whereas fraternal twins only share half their genome right so you can see how genetic something is because if it occurs more in the identical twins then it's possibly linked to the gene make sense Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm So what they did is they found that 80% of identical twins shared a like or dislike of coriander. So if one of them disliked it, the other one also disliked it. So it's either kind of a both or nothing. Whereas only 50% of fraternal twins did. Mm. So So it suggests that it's very heavily genetic. genetic. Mm. And so then um, the company 23andMe, you might have heard of it, They analyzed the genomes of almost 30,000 people and asked them also what they thought of the taste of coriander, right? And then essentially had a look at all those genomes and tried to see if there were any links where people who shared their dislike of coriander had overlap in similar genes. And they found that people who thought that coriander tasted like soap essentially had similar, like had similarities in a bunch of different smell receptor genes, particularly smell receptors that detect something called aldehyde chemicals. So, you know, if you're a chemistry nut, you probably know what an aldehyde group is, but those of you who don't, an aldehyde is just, it's a carbon double bonded to an oxygen and single bonded to a hydrogen. And if that's on the end of some chain of chemicals, then it's said to be an aldehyde because it has an aldehyde group. And so it's just this particular collection of chemicals. And there are a few famous aldehyde, well, famous that we know. So there's vanillin, which we recognize as the smell of vanilla. Um, There's cinnamaldehyde is, (laughs) you can possibly guess. Yeah, like frangipani, of course. Um. (laughs) Yeah, cinnamon. Uh, (laughs) Cinnamaldehyde is, is cinnamon. And so interestingly, there's this particular gene it's called OR6A2. I said that weirdly. OR6A2. Buzzwordy, recognizable name. Yeah. Uh, oh, I but love essentially, the smell of ORIGA2. I can't remember what you said. It, it codes <laughs> OR6A2. Uh, it codes for the receptor that picks up the scent of aldehyde chemicals. Mm. And so these people that didn't like coriander thought it tasted like a bubble bath um, Mm. or made their soup taste like a bubble bath, I guess, um, shared, they all had this particular gene and this particular variant of the receptor that can sense aldehydes. And interestingly, the thing, the reason that I'm like soap and I keep talking about soap is because Mm. aldehydes are given off in the soap making process. They're part of what we smell when we smell soap. And so you have everyone who dislikes coriander has this particular taste variant, this particular lock that fits this aldehyde key really well. And this aldehyde key goes, 
fucking soap, bitter, gross, not bitter, bitter's wrong. Uh, I don't know why I said bitter, but mm. like fucking soap, gross, whatever, you know, you've got this thing. So that's why you can detect it because for, for me, the key's bouncing off the lock. It's not doing anything. My brain's mm. not registering it. Yours, it's fitting in there, setting off this alarm. Right. Um, it's telling you and- that you're eating soap. So yeah. Like, stop eating. What are you doing? You. You're eating. Yeah. Soap is well, that's to be why eaten. we've kind of developed these things, right? Is because mm. you know that's why associations with taste are so strong. Is because mm. you know it's advantageous to know when to not eat something yeah. because yeah. poisoning that's, is a quite an easy way to die. That's what I was going to say for, for for the question itself. Which mm. Was one of the reasons is uh, evolution. My dad always taught me that the nose is sort of but you, you smell things before they go in your mouth. To, mm. to stop you from eating something that could kill you, right? So mm. before it even goes, like if you pick up some poo <laughs> mm. and you put it near your mouth, uh, you're going to have a chocolate? tough... Mm. Nope. Yeah, it's a gonna, defense mechanism. Yeah, you're going to have a tough time actually putting it on your tongue when you've already smelt that smell and mm. your body, your whole body is telling you, do not put that in your mouth. It's bad for you. And so certain plants have developed certain odors as defense mechanisms to mm-hmm. keep animals away and you know we talked about in our crying episode chopping onions releases that isoalien and it makes our eyes water but it actually other animals can sense that essentially smell it right and it teaches them to stay away that's Mm -hmm. what that chemical does and that's sort of why we have uh innate associations for things that uh, that are common amongst people like not liking chili is actually quite common because the deadly nightshades are actually bad for you Mm. (laughs) it is technically a poison Mm. Which but I mean, so was... is in the dose. Yeah. <laughs> see, yeah, see our right. listener a, question from last dose. week, um, the Antarctica episode. But God, so many references there. But just <laughs> you know, it just I feel like we've talked about a lot of this stuff before because everything in science just overlaps and it's beautiful. Yeah. But okay, so that's all well and good. But you know, to throw a spanner in the works, and this is where I say possibly, Matt, maybe this is you. Maybe you're you you don't have the OR six A two because yeah, okay. you don't associate it with soap. Because not everyone with two copies of the OR six A two actually thinks coriander tastes like soap. Most of them do, but not quite everyone. Eleven point five percent of people with no copies of this OR six A two gene also agreed that coriander is fucking gross. So it's obviously more complicated yeah, than yeah. there are obviously other genes involved as well. Like it's not just this OR6A2. Oh, and, and so and maybe the you're other, the you other know. factors that we've already spoken about. Like well, yeah, you can also build a negative, and, negative right, association. Yeah. If to someone coriander, gives you coriander like, for the first time and they say, Hey, don't you think this smells like soap? Whether or not you've got that gene, you may then live your life like with that association of coriander mm. smells like soap. You know, so it could be a And it could even be like things. a subconscious thing. Like, you know, I I think I read an example of people not wanting to eat cherry tomatoes because when they were a kid, they built the association of biting into a cherry tomato to being like biting into an eyeball. And then oh, even though they yeah. consciously didn't have that association anymore, the subconscious like reaction still mm. happened every time mm. they bit into a cherry tomato. They mm. felt deeply uncomfortable because of this subconscious thing that got established when they were little about it being an eyeball. Mm. I think um, I get that sometimes, not necessarily with taste, but with like um, when I try to take tablets, I'm really bad at mm. taking tablets. And I know it's a purely psychological thing because there are sometimes mm. if I don't think about it too hard, mm. I can take some reasonably large tablets, take two at once, it's fine. But then sometimes... But because you've I had a negative experience, yeah. your body's had, like, but like protect. So, it's it's a yeah. protect reaction. Like you sometimes know, I'll even struggle to, to take out. one of those like really really tiny antihistamine tablets. Mm. Like I'll put it on my tongue, and my instinct is just. 
no, no. And then I just actually have to spit it out because it just sets off my gag reflex so badly. Mm. It's mm. all this talk, it makes me wonder as well, because obviously people can people's tastes change over time. It's made me wonder if even if you're born with the genetics to be a sub taster or a medium taster, if you could train your body to develop more taste receptors. So mm. if, you, if you ate a lot of flavorful food and you're really concentrated on the taste and you, you really loved it, could your body, you know, you've got an odd 80 years to evolve and develop I in your know. lifetime. Could you actually go from being sub-taster you can definitely learn to a super-taster? Taste is definitely an adaptive thing. Like no one likes beer the first time. No well, one likes coffee the first time. There's a lot of logic to that though, because that's in terms of generally things that kids consider very bitter and very like kids are much more sensitive, first of all, because mm. over your lifetime, you know, you get desensitized. Cause like think about it, kids don't drink coffee generally. Kids don't mm. smoke cigarettes. That's one of the generally. other things that kills off your taste. Uh, sensitivity generally um you know things like beer or these like bitter mm. things kids don't consume that and then as you regularly consume that you get more used to it and so your mm. sensitivity changes it's not like the coriander thing where you're literally tasting something else entirely because the key mm. fits differently mm. it's just a how many locks do you have to, you know, the chances of a key landing in one is much higher the more of them you have. And kids have a lot more. And so over your lifetime, you get less sensitive. But there's also another interesting thing with kids. Um, and that's that there's actually evidence that they're more likely to seek out sugary things or tolerate really, really sugary things compared to adults because something that gets like a hormone that gets released when their bones are growing makes them crave sugar and seek out mm. sugar because, you know, as they're growing, they actually need more energy in order to grow. And our bodies like developed this fucking nifty system where as we're growing, we're actually alerting the brain to seek out more sugar because we need those excess calories. And that's what sugar essentially signifies. When we taste mm. sweet, it means high calorie generally, or that's what it used to mean before we developed mm. artificial sweeteners and fucked up a lot of sit, uh, <laughs> shit. But fundamentally, that's what our brain associates that sweet taste with. And yeah. so that's why kids tend to like more of it and so yeah I don't know whether how much being mindful of like flavor would actually make you grow additional receptors or change because it's you know in your genetic code which particular shape receptor you make because you mm. know you only have the blueprint for one type of one shaped protein and you only know how to make that one but having said that you know neuroplasticity is a thing and we know yeah. that if people lose a limb they retrain those parts of your brain to register different and, parts and so who's been to say he heaps of study around you know people born as genetically identical twins by the end of their lifetime if their life experiences were different enough you know your dna does actually change that that's how evolution works. Is well, you, epigenetics. You know, epigenetics exactly, is a whole exactly, thing where exactly. it's like you know the fundamental base pairs are the same, and so that you know that's the baseline blueprint is the same. But in terms of what's actually expressed and different things bind to the yeah. DNA, so and it I doesn't guess, change the base pair, but it changes what you recognize it as. I, I guess I'm asking perhaps through exposure to mm. to, to lots of lots of different flavors, like you know. If you ate like Indian food has so many different spices and mm. flavors in it that you would never even get if you only ever ate well, you know, the ma complexity, mashed potato and beans. The complexity is going to largely come from the smell more than the taste, which mm. is why, you know, when you have a blocked nose, you can't really taste. But it's not just like the smell, you know, it's so with coriander, for example, it's not just the smell of raw coriander. It's more like when you taste it, you uh, taste it. Sorry, when you chew it, it yeah, releases it these additional things up the back of your throat 
into that very, you know, top of your roof of your mouth, back of your nose sort of area. Mm. And that's where you've got your smell things. And there's a much greater diversity of types of smells compared to like, you know, you've only got those five different types of taste cells. Um, but yeah, so Could the smell is a like- massive component building a tolerance you know you build but yeah a that's you build to a like, tolerance to, uh, either to flavor or to like various poisons or like you know to alcohol to drugs mm, you, you desensitize over people time who are like the more to peanuts, you i'm pretty sure you can people with allergies there, there are ways now to like mm. get rid of those allergies like by through exposure to the allergen well over it's time, all you, build you know it up. it's all entropy matt um <laughs> <laughs> No, but it actually because it's it's the body is very good at desensitizing and building tolerances because it likes to exist at this mm-hmm. um, you know agree. at this level of homeostasis, which yeah. Bodhi mentioned uh, at the end. You and, know, which and is also where, the the exact opposite, where maybe if your if your food isn't tasting as good as you're used to it or as strong, maybe you you have a, a break from really flavorful food and you just eat a whole lot of bland stuff for a week and then you mm. come back to it. And your your tolerance has gone mm. down, right? Well, there's evidence that Whoa. even within the one meal, you can desensitize. Like, that's why mm. you should have a varied meal. Because if you just eat, like, if you think about it, right, if you eat a whole plate of just, like, chips, for example, by the end, you're going to be very sick of the flavor of chips if that's mm, the yeah. only thing that mm. you eat. Because you desensitize to the flavors. You, just, you just salt and oil. You're, yeah, no, your tongue's <laughs> kind of yeah. like, oh, all starch. right. We've kind of already told you what's in this. Do you really need us to keep firing? Like, you've got the message by now, surely. Mm. You know what this fucking thing tastes like. I'm mm. having a day off. You get over Whereas if you have, like, a varied plate, you don't get, you know, you can still enjoy your last chip as much as your first because you've had, you know, your, your tongue actually has to do work and be like, okay, well, now you're tasting the chicken. Yeah, okay, well, that was a tomato that you just eyeball yeah. squished in your mouth. Um, mm. And then, oh, now we're back to the salty for the chips. Um, you know, it has to actually keep... Yeah, and so there's evidence that within the one meal, people sensitize, or sorry, desensitize and build up a tolerance to flavors. And so definitely over larger scales. Oh, goodness. I never thought we could talk about tastes so much. That's, a, that's I know. amazing, isn't it? <laughs> uh, honestly, I it's it's so fascinating, and there's there's probably more that I could say, but I think that I it's have like sufficiently comp- answered Anne's question yeah. uh, for yeah, the there moment. Are many many reasons that we do and don't like different things. Mm. <laughs> it's a very well, it's like your taste system. in ev- anything, right? Music. Like your music taste, your mm-hmm. exactly your you know anything. We build up preferences as humans based on what happens around us. But in terms of, yeah, there there is an innate reason why different people dislike different things. And part of it is your sensitivity as in the number of, you know, whether you're a super yeah, taster or not. And then yeah. part of it is just the actual shape of the receptors that you have on your tongue and whether they make the aldehyde taste like soap or mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. don't taste it. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. With that, oh, I... Thank you, Bodie, so much for coming oh, on. Yeah. I thank, have thank had you guys. Thank an you guys, absolutely honestly. fucking great time. <laughs> Me too. Oh Me my gosh. This was so <laughs> satisfying for my brain. And I am so happy. And I hope it was for our listeners as well. I hope they uh, didn't get too, so. you know, Over overwhelmed out. by how much I can be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, oh, thank you. So, Bodhi, I, I hear that you have, um, if listeners, 
loved everything that you had to say and want some more, you know, access to some stuff that you oh, make. Yeah. Oh, if you I hear this and if you have kids uh, and you want them to learn a little bit about uh, what we were talking about, especially with cells and teamwork and how all that stuff we can just has been happening for a long time already. You know, the secrets of evolution and tapping into that. I do have an online course that's just mm. come out. All you got to do is uh, look on the, the angels school. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've got a course there. It's less than one hour long. It's got about five lessons in it. Uh, they're pretty short, easy to listen to, uh, good for kids. Yeah. yeah, we yeah. will link that in the description yeah, so you guys Go can it. find it. Um, yeah, so excited for you. It's very cool. And I am going to write a follow-up course about entropy. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So we can flesh out what we've discussed today in, in greater depth. <laughs> yeah, give it a kid-friendly uh, kid <laughs> Yeah, list. yeah, this podcast has probably got not few, the right because, level because of swearing uh, <laughs> for children. Teenagers wouldn't mind it. Nah. Yeah. nah, nah, yeah, nah. nah I would yeah, rate yeah. Curiosity Killed the Rat at an MA15 plus mm. or, or a PG13, maybe. Depends how edgy your 13 year old is. <laughs> Definitely not M. Not M? It's either MA or PG, it's not That's M. That's it. No, not M. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I went, to, I went to an American rating. PG-13 is probably the American's equivalent of M. Yeah, rated. I think so. But they, ha they have like an actual restriction if you have to be 13 to watch it, I think. Oh. I don't know. I'm not an American. I'm just going no. off the large amounts of American media I consume. Mm. Which is not a small amount. Um, <laughs> not just you, me also. Um, the world as a whole. Yes. Um, anyway, thank you everyone for listening. I hope you guys had a blast. And if Have you want to find, about... oh, there we go. Sorry, you're about to do that. I cut you off. I'm sorry. I thought you were. I thought you were about to do the concluding thing. I was like, we've got about our social. Media. <sighs> Trust me, Matt. I I do my job. I have one <laughs> job, and it's to plug our socials. Uh, and so, <laughs> so. So, if you want to find us on social media, uh, give us a cheeky like, cheeky follow. You can find us at Curiosity Rat on Twitter or Insta, or just Curiosity Killed the Rat on Facebook. You can find us, we're also on SoundCloud, YouTube. I don't know if we've put up a YouTube video in a while. I'll be honest, not. we haven't because the time uh, it takes to render out the videos <laughs> of the episode takes far too long. So. so, instead, just keep listening on whatever platform you're listening to now. If you want to give us, you know, a five star review on Apple Podcasts, we will not be sad about it. Um, <laughs> And with that, lovely listeners, thank you for joining us. Bye. Bye. Oh, I forgot to say you can also use blue food dye to find out if you're a super taster or not because you oh, can, shit. like, drop it on your um, I love tongue. The and the, the fungi, fungi form papillae don't stain blue for some reason. And so oh. you can tell if if you're someone who, like, okay, so, like, last time you had a blue lolly that stains mm. your tongue, if your tongue goes, like, super blue, then you're probably a super taster. If your tongue doesn't go very blue at all, like, it's still mostly kind of pink and white, then you're a sub taster. And if it's just kind of in between, you're probably a middle taster. Oh, Definitely, um, definitely edit that into earlier because that's mm, interesting. I'll find a way to spice mm, it. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I kept recording, so. Nice. So did I. Or you put it as the little bit at the end, maybe. A little like blooper. the after music. Uh, but blooper? it's not really a blooper. No, but nah. a blooper. Oh, oh that's good. Oh, oh, he's onto uh, it. Blooper. <laughs> a blooper. blooper. <laughs>